following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. study the life of David that somehow or other we're going to come to a time when a man experiences a great fall. Because just as we associate with David the name Goliath for an exploit that allowed him to claim the honor of God and defend that when others would not, and we see him rise spiritually from that point onward in his story in First and Second Samuel. Another name you cannot avoid associating with David is the woman Bathsheba. And that, of course, is what we come to today in chapter 11 of Second Samuel. And just so you understand, I will be dealing more or less directly with this incident in David's life for two more Sundays beyond today, Lord willing. For the incident, the sin itself is presented in chapter 11, and then the reaction to it in chapter 12, and then there's much outworking from it happening in disastrous things that affect David's whole family and future in chapters yet to come. So this is not a one-week-only message on this particular sin of David. But listen as I read Second Samuel 11. I'll read 1 through 15, and then I'll jump to verse 25 through the end. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived and sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? 
And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and his servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, Remain here today also and tomorrow, and I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Now that exact thing happens in the succeeding verses. We're just, for economy's sake, let's go to verse 25 in the aftermath of Uriah's death. David said to the messenger who came, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another, Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And this is God's work. Many of you might on vacation travels possibly stop and tour one of the many lighthouses in America that line our coastal areas and are still maintained. Many people are interested in lighthouses. They're structures of some romance and, of course, important history. And yet today you realize they're actually rather superfluous because I think in almost every single case major ocean-going vessels have global satellite tracking positioning devices that tell them where they are and allow them to avoid the rocks of the coast that the lighthouse once did. But we still like the romance of the lighthouse, that beam going out to warn people of places where they might become shipwrecked against a coastal area. There are similar warning beacons, I think, in the Bible that come from spiritual failures of redeemed believers and afterward shine out of darkness to warn others. Don't go where this person did. Here is a place where you will wreck your soul. Please beware. And dangers are revealed that you and I ought to take heed of so that we wouldn't hit the rocks and be ruined in our negligence or carelessness or idleness as others have been. Almost every year since I first became a pastor, I have heard of people I know in some way, or at least those I know of, well-known individuals known for Christian testimony, many of them ministers, who have in some way made shipwreck of their testimonies. I remember a pastor, this goes back more than 30 years, a man who would have been old enough to be my father, 
In fact, one of his daughters was a college classmate, and he was a well-respected and honored pastor. He had a fine, solid ministry. And yet, in the time just after his daughter was my college classmate, it became revealed that he had had a several-year affair with a member of his church staff. And worst of all, when that was revealed, his wife of many, many years was dying of cancer. And before she died, he left her for the woman with whom he'd had the affair. You can only imagine the after-effects of that one. Part of me always reacts when I hear things like that. How could he ever do that? But then there's the other part that I've been taught, I hope, by the Word of God to react with a shudder and say, there but for the grace of God go I as well. Last time we saw a high watermark point in David's life when he showed us the wonderful Christ-like covenant kindness towards Mephibosheth, the crippled son of Jonathan, all based on a former vow that he could have easily forgotten about. Nobody was going to bind him to do anything for Mephibosheth. But out of pure grace, acting like Christ himself, David provided for Mephibosheth, one of the best moments in his whole career. But now in 2 Samuel 11, just two chapters later, We feel like we fall off a cliff alongside David. And you say, is this the same man? How could it be? As our hero, David, goes into a dark valley committing adultery, rank deception, abuse of power, and does that which really is tantamount to murder. He does not murder Uriah with his own hand, but certainly causes his death. And in this Bathsheba episode, we discover our godly king has real feet of clay, if we didn't know that already. And yet David is still the man after God's heart. You read this chapter, you say, how could he be? Well, you have to put it together with what happens afterward because we will indeed see one of the great lessons of the grace of God and the the truth of what real repentance is, but today that's not before us. Today all we can see is that unlike Saul, David could sin greatly, but he could also repent deeply and sincerely. And I told you back much earlier when we talked about Saul that that was the one thing that man could never do. I hope you'll hear this pretty practical and simple truth today that in the Christian life, none of us are going to avoid sinning. And none of us are going to avoid sinning sometimes very obviously and very grievously. But the important thing is not that we would not sin. It is that we would recognize our sin for what it is in the eyes of God and repent of it swiftly and sincerely. And if we will do that, labeling our own misdeeds and rebellions against God for what they are without cover-up or excuses, we can and we will enjoy the transforming grace of divine forgiveness that has been provided for us today in Jesus Christ.
Well, in the first place, I would say that this unhappy account of David's great sin is a moral lighthouse for us because it shows us and helps us realize the worst of which the finest believers are capable. And we must make no exceptions. The finest of any believing leader you can think of, any moral example who stands out in your mind, is capable of what David did here. You know, one of the very strong proofs that I've always thought was, uh, as far as the Word of God is concerned, being the Word of God and not merely the Word of man, is the way the great characters of the Bible are portrayed. If we were going to write a book, you know, let's, let's invent a religion, and, and now we'll tell you about the leaders of that religion, what are we going to do? We're going to be like campaign managers for the folks out on the campaign trail right now. We're going to build up every good thing they've ever done, and we're going to ignore or brush aside every possible ethical or, or moral problem that they were ever involved in. We're not going to paint them warts and all. You show me a single campaign manager for, you know, the 2016 electoral campaign who's going to come out and trumpet the wrongs that his candidate has done. It's not going to happen. But what about the Bible? Some have commented that the only persons in all of the Bible that could begin to be called major characters, at least, that are dealt with over multiple chapters, of whom nothing really negative is ever said, are Joseph, and you could say he was kind of a cocky kid, and Daniel. You cannot find hardly anyone else who doesn't have real problems. Noah obeyed God and became shamefully drunk and committed incest with his daughters. Abraham used cowardly deception that put his wife in danger. Peter disowned the Lord with a curse. Go on and on and on. If the Bible was merely a religious guide intended to impress people about how good the followers of Jehovah are, the authors did a poor job. But instead, Scripture gives us what today we would call reality TV, what people really are like. One commentator wrote to say this, I quote him, We cannot be glad that David failed as he did, but we can readily identify with it. He is bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. He is no pristine superhero who floats across the ground in effortless triumph. And this author went on and said, If David is a saved man, it is obviously God who saved him by pure grace. We must be thankful for the stark honesty of the Word of God because the real David meshes with the reality of our lives and with the God who delights in being merciful. Well said. Now here's some concrete reasons you might think about why we might ask ourselves, why did David fall like this? He was so strong. He was so spiritually well-tuned to God. Why did he fall like this? Well, Probably a lot of reasons, but I'm going to give you four very quickly. First of all, because he was made of the same stuff as our basic human nature. Try out Romans 3 sometime, verses 10 and following, in its very blunt summary about humankind, saying there is none righteous, not even one. 
No one seeks after God. They've all turned away and become worthless. And every mouth is silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. And there's much more in Romans 3. Convicting all of us. Convicting the human race. James chapter 1 verse 14 and following says, Each of us is tempted when by our own evil desires we are dragged away and enticed. And after desire is conceived in us, it gives birth to sin And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. That's an exact analytical description of what happened to David in this chapter. Shameful thoughts breed atrocious deeds. And David was true to all that the human personality and human character are made of ever since the fall of our first parents in the Garden of Eden. Second reason why, notice in 11.1 here, 2 Samuel 11, 1, that there was an an issue of relaxation from duty involved. David's army was out in the field against the Ammonites, a a war that is told about in the preceding chapter 10. And uh, the army went off to fight, but David, now more a middle-aged man, figures they can handle it without me. He hangs out at home. That's not a sin as such. But there's apparently a relaxation on the king's part here that might fit what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 26 when he said, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. David's flesh was weak. He was taking it easy. I think I'm entitled to a break. I don't have to go out there and fight every battle. Just let me take it easy. And we are in a war, we're reminded, with the evil one who seeks to attack us when we pray every week, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. We are acknowledging that we are in a war, and there's somebody who wants us to take us down even when we're not looking or caring or thinking there's danger. A third thing that might be a reason here is David's about 50 years old by now. Often when you're in a time of life when the positive attributes of your life are building around you and you have a strong reputation and you're in leadership and respected and maybe you even have a certain amount of authority, you can begin to think you're somebody. David was the king. Kings certainly think they're somebody because they are somebody. They give an order and people jump. And there can be a sense of arrogance that comes with power or with reputation or with midlife accomplishment. Notice, if you would read and look for it, you will be surprised how many times, if you reread this chapter, it says, David sent a messenger. David sent, and she came. David sent, and this happened. All David had to do was write a memo, and things happened. He was a mover and a shaker. He could manipulate people. He could arrange circumstances any way he wanted to. And when you begin to think you really are somebody, then you begin to use that kind of arrogant position to bluff your way and bulldoze past almost any difficulty. But the fourth reason why David fell, I'm convinced, is certainly the most obvious in his life. And that is David's obvious weakness in the area of women and marriage. 
We've already seen this. It's not proved for the first time here. His roving eye for an attractive woman was always his Achilles heel. And as for taking wives, we're aware of the names of six of them already. Bathsheba is at least number seven. David ignored principles of God's Word which were known in his time to be the will of God about one woman, one man marriage. God didn't have to thunder that every generation for people to know that that was his will. But he decided he would go more along with the worldly society, which said if you're a powerful man and a wealthy man and you can afford to do it and the women are willing, have as many wives as you want. Now, you can't get away with that today. You'd be in jail. But you could get away with it in David's time if you were in his position. There are people who would suggest, by the way, that Bathsheba was somewhat responsible for all this. You know, we don't know exactly what went on there. There have been many dramatizations of David and Bathsheba. And people say, well, here's an attractive woman. Maybe she thought the king was desirable, and she set up this whole scene knowing the king liked to take his little walk in the afternoon, and she certainly, what was she doing? Taking a bath in public view and all that kind of thing. Let's try to blame the victim. But the text doesn't do that. The text blames David. And it shows us the way that a lustful whim in an idle moment turned into an enormous crime that involved murder and, and reverberated through the coming generations of David. Just think that King Solomon, who was going to be the king, came from this union. Think of the effect that that had on all of these other wives and other sons. And it's a t- pretty terrible story that goes on and unfolds as all the infighting between David's sons happens, and they're killing each other within a few chapters. Job chapter 31 tells how Job self-defensively tells his detractors that, who are trying to tell him that he's a more sinful man than he's willing to admit. One of the things Job has to say along the way that's a memorable statement, he says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. That's an interesting and powerful statement. Every Christian man certainly ought to consider that very carefully. Sexual sin is waiting for you every turn of the way. You can't sit down in front of the TV for 15 minutes without being confronted with something that can turn your mind in a wrong direction through advertising or programming or anything else these days. And all you have to do is indulge your thinking in a certain direction, and there are all kinds of avenues. You men know exactly what I'm talking about, where the thought begins to breed and and maybe begins to give birth to dissatisfaction with your wife or your life as it is and, and makes you think, well, couldn't there be something a little different in my life than what's there right now? If we were to maintain Job's covenant about where to look and where to let our eyes and our minds dwell, we would be praying daily, men, in this society, a society that has abandoned every idea almost of feminine modesty or sexual chastity, 
within marriage, or outside of marriage, that is, chastity, unless you're married, we would be saying, oh, God, every day, help my eyes not to dwell in places where they ought not to dwell. What possible immunity from this same transgression of David does any of us claim that we could have? If you read this and you say, wow, this is horrifying, this is really bad, and then you say, or at least in your mind you say, oh, I could never do that, watch out. You're skating on very thin ice. We should never be surprised by what we all are capable of thinking and then doing in the sight of God. Well, if it's an example first of the great wrongs of notable Christians, secondly, this passage, this biblical tragedy, lets us behold something. We can behold here the futility of sin's cover-up. Many times the Bible uses paradox or, or irony, and it, it's, don't miss it here, because the person who's most godly, who is most godly in 2 Samuel chapter 11? It certainly isn't David. Who is it? It's Uriah, the Hittite. A Hittite is not an Israelite. Uriah was apparently a mercenary soldier who came under the service of the king of Israel, and there were numerous such people. He was not a follower of Jehovah, at least not by nature. He may have been converted in some ways, but here it is a non-Israelite Gentile who is the shining example of devotion to duty, God, and country. Uriah's the Marine standing in full-dress uniform at attention in this text. And it's his conniving Israelite, God-following, God-loving king who's the hypocrite crafting an ineffective scheme to try to make Uriah spend a night at his home so that later on when a baby is born, everybody, will, oh yeah, well he did have that short leave from battle, so we know where this child came from. David is desperately trying to get Uriah to spend a night at home. And the man is saying the honorable thing, the rest of Israel's out there in the camp fighting, shedding their blood. How can I come back and be at my ease? I too must attend to duty. What a paradox. And you see in David here that when he knows what he has done is wrong, then he immediately has to give his all to serving appearances, covering up, making it look like something it isn't. And the comment is often made about this passage that David expended more energy in the attempt to launder his name here and build a cover story than the effort that he had to expend to commit the sin in the first place. And isn't that true? You know, once we go down a road of something that we're ashamed of, then ever afterwards we have to kind of dodge and and be careful and, well, who knows what or what does that person know about me and uh, I better, you know, kind of build the cover story over here a little bit. David manipulated others, used his royal power to build this cover story, which was a folly. And his flimsy efforts to do this soon showed that they gave him no more protection than if they were a spider's web across the road with a speeding truck on its way. 
In my childhood Sunday school days, we learned memory verses every week. I think our Sunday school does that to some extent. And I'm sure a lot of them I've forgotten, but a lot of them I do remember. And one I remember, I can't say why, but I remember it with a special vividness, is actually only the fragment of a verse in an obscure place, Numbers 32, 23. The verse was an easy one to learn compared to some. It says something like this, be sure of this, your sin will find you out. Did you ever learn that verse? Anybody? Hands. Anybody ever learned that? Ah, amazing. That's a more used verse than I realized. That verse stuck to me like a burr. And into my teenage years, which are probably some of the years when you're most tempted to get into things or do things that you might be ashamed of later, I can remember, at least in my subconscious, if not my active conscious mind, there was that verse. Be sure of it. Your sin will find you out. You can't evade God, is what that verse says in so many words. Other scriptures add to it. Hebrews 4.13 says, All things are exposed to him to whom we must give an account. Romans 2.16 says, God will one day judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Luke 12.2, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that it will not be made known. Things whispered in the corners of a household will one day be shouted from the rooftops. That one really got me. As I would think about things happening in my life, and would I like, would I like this to be shouted from the rooftop? What would, what would happen to me if this was shouted from the rooftop or if I did that? And of course, I'm not going to claim I've never done anything that I could or should regret. But I can tell you that God gave me at a young age a healthy concept that whatever I did was certainly exposed to his all-seeing eye, and I would be accountable for it probably in this world and certainly in the next world. So the cover-up is a waste of effort, and it always is. Thirdly today, I want you to observe the bottom line of reckoning for our sin. You're going to wish that I would probably go farther and get David out of his hole, but he's not out of the hole at the end of this chapter, is he? Well, all we've done really here is see the the sin itself, but you need to see the importance of the very last sentence of chapter 11 in 11.27. It's not even the whole of 11.27. It's only the last part of that verse. The bottom line of reckoning for our sin is this statement. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. As they check out the Hebrew experts on that, I think that's not possibly the best or strongest translation. There are some who would say the better translation there is the thing David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, we are going to spend a couple more weeks looking at this episode and and what happened, how David responded, how God responded. So we leave it a little incomplete. We haven't yet heard from the prophet Nathan, as we will in chapter 12, when the finger pointed through the cover-up, and Nathan said, You are the man, David. You're the one. 
and then things began to happen. But for today, let's leave it with this statement of 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven, which should, in a manner of speaking, send a chill through us and give us a foreboding message that David hasn't heard the end of this because the thing he had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. The king's plot seemed like it temporarily succeeded. All his maneuverings and manipulations had sort of built a screen around it, and he could walk away and probably… Isn't it amazing how David knows he has engineered a man's death, a man loyal to him and loyal to his nation, and when he gets word of it in verse 25, he says, oh, well, soldiers die all the time. Wow. David, you know that you killed him. And he says, oh, these things happen. The sword devours one now and then another. Go back and tell Joab to strengthen the attack. That is a man about as cold in his back turned to God as you can possibly be. We sang in the service today a hymn of a fairly little-known hymn writer, Robert Robertson, that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. You know, wouldn't it be great if the minute we turned our backs on God or, or gave ourselves to something like David did here, it, it felt so terrible that we fled from it automatically? It wasn't like that, was it? In fact, disobeying God doesn't always or even often feel bad. When you're doing it, it probably feels good. You're enjoying yourself. And for a short time, at least, you feel like you're in control and satisfied, never thinking that you have actually usurped the place of God in your life and hurt other people in the process. But the one person you have hurt most and offended most is God. Because you have actually jumped onto his throne and said, I can give my own directions for the universe and nobody can question me. How is David going to recover from something like this? I'm mindful of the words of the old nursery rhyme, all the king's horses and all the king's men are not going to put Humpty David together again. No human cure is going to fix this not going to a psychiatrist and sitting through months of, of analysis, not apologies sent out to Bathsheba, not paying damages to those who were harmed, not any medication that he would take to redirect his behavior in the future. No king's horses, no king's men, no human device available to a powerful king is going to change him. The bottom line of this episode is David, for all the harmful, terrible things he had done to Uriah and Bathsheba, David has wronged God. And until he sees that and acknowledges that, he will not be ready for God to change him. The bottom line here is described also by that same hymn writer, oh, to grace how great a debtor Daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace like a fetter, like a pair of handcuffs,
Bind my wandering heart to Thee. Grace is the answer. The free action of God who can forgive. How do you approach such a God? What do you say? What has to happen in your heart? Well, folks, those are things to come in the next week or two. But maybe you have some idea, if you have any memory at all, of Psalm 51. And we're going to take a look at that. There will be bitter consequences from what David did. In fact, wow, his sin with many wives. There's no place in 2 Samuel where, where God thunders and says, David, because you married many wives, you're really going to regret it. Oh, but all you have to do is read the book and see his sons murdering each other and see one son sexually assaulting his stepsister and so on and so forth. And you see, wow, is David ever going to pay for his wandering eye and his lustful heart? The forgiveness of God is available. The grace of God is available. It's instantly available as we're going to learn. What do we have to do? We have to realize that bottom line of chapter 11, that it is the Lord who is displeased, the Lord who has seen this evil, and so it is the Lord who has to be dealt with, the Lord before whom we have to repent. And I believe we have this lighthouse beacon from one believer's massive failure shining in this very dark place for us actually to give us hope. So that any pit we get into like this, even vaguely like this, we would know that heartfelt repentance that labels sin the way God labels it in the bottom line of 2 Samuel 11.27 means there's a way out. We have many ways to sin. God has one way to forgive, by free grace. And he loves to bestow that when we seek it, in the name of Jesus. Our Father, I ask that the somber, terrible example of David would be like a beacon to us. Probably nobody here could be in exactly this same circumstance, but we can think of ways that we could do similar things. Search us, Father. Try us. Know us. Show us where there are wicked ways in us. If we are so blind that we really don't recognize it, wake us up. Bring us on our faces before you as David would come to be. That we might see who has really been harmed. Of all the people we've hurt, all the damage we may have done to family, to co-workers, to friends, It's you that we owe an accounting to. Father, thank you that we don't come to you as some terrible judge who's going to crash down with wrath upon us. But we come to you as the God who even forgave David. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.